A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary care plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, welcome to the 358th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Jack Meggers and Cole Needham. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan. And I do want to shout out that Jack Meggers, one of our uh, new patrons, is actually an old patron, but he stopped his Patreon and restarted it. Just want to let you all know that Jack has hacked the system. Maybe Jack's wallet got stolen. Maybe he, you know, his dog ate his credit card. Who knows? But regardless, hacking or misfortune or just, you know, coming into a little bit of money all are on the table if you want your name in a podcast. Anyway, you interact with the Patreon will probably trigger us mentioning your name. Jason Wollner, nobody had heard of him. He's our guest on the podcast today. He contributed to our Patreon. We mentioned him and then mm-hmm. he got to drag Borat too. Yeah, pretty wild. Congrats, Jason. Some of that might or might not be true. But in all seriousness, Jason Wallner is a comedy director whose name I've known for a long time. I was so excited to have him on the show. Got started way back in the day with Human Giant, which was a sketch show on MTV and a sketch group before that that I always really loved. And it's great to have him on the show. He's got a new pretty crazy show called Paul T. Goldman. Available on Peacock, and it is kind of, we get into it, but it's a meta documentary reenactment behind the scenes crazy show. I think we concluded that it's not even worth trying to explain what it is. You all should just watch it. It's on Peacock. There's only six episodes. Just watch it right now. It's really good. We had a British listener, Jamie Sadler, you might have heard his name on the podcast before, reach out to me and say, hey, we don't have Peacock in the UK. How do I watch this? Jason kind of walked him through some, some ways to watch it. So if you want to watch it and you can't, let us know. But if you're in anywhere that has Peacock, it's very easy. I think it's like $3.99, $4.99. Yeah, it's pretty affordable. There's a lot of great stuff on there. Peacock is, uh, you know, it's making waves. They're doing stuff. Jason also worked on Nathan For You, Nathan Fielder's first Comedy Central show, and also, as Oren mentioned, Borat too. So he's got a background in these kind of augmented documentary stories. He did a bunch of episodes of uh, Last Man on Earth and a bunch of other TV shows. So he's definitely in the comedy world. He kind of goes from scripted to non-scripted. And it seems like his favorite place to live is right in the middle. Like I said, longtime fan, really interesting show. It's worth also mentioning that previous guest, Jody McVeigh Schultz, uh, was the editor on that show and now is show running all sorts of crazy stuff. So shout out Jody. It's way, way back in the archives there, our first conversation with Jody, but we should have him on the show sometime soon. Yeah, for sure. Jody is awesome. And Jason, I'm sure I've mentioned this a million times. We met because he's a dad at uh, my son's daycare. And again, just, just another reason coming to LA, you know, running into people. We should tell people about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash just shoot a pot is the place where you can give us a couple bucks to keep this show afloat. And we got an awesome team. We got Noah, we got Tyler, Matt, it's okay. Yeah. An exciting time to be a part of the train. Patreon.com slash just shoot a pot at the $20 level. I will personally mail you a hat. 
that uh, might or might not be packed by uh, child labor, aka my kids. Check it out, patreon.com slash justshootitpod. Okay, should we talk to Jason? Let's hop in with Jason. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, hey, we are here with Jason Wolliner. How's it going? Good. Hi, thanks for having me on. Welcome, Jason. So excited. So Jason, explain to us what is the saga that is Paul T. Goldman? So it's a show called Paul T. Goldman. It's on Peacock. It is a, let's say, docu-series um, <laughs> about a man uh, trying to take down his ex-wife's uh, international crime ring, which may or may not exist. I think that's the closest I've come to being able to describe it succinctly. It's, but it's this kind of very meta winding thing where this man named Paul T. Goldman this man who calls himself Paul T. Goldman, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, it's there's no easy way in. Uh, tweeted at it's me. It's kind of like, uh, don't you think yeah. it's like a fancy behind the scenes? Yeah, there, a, a good amount of the show is this real man telling his story. He wrote a book and then he wrote a screenplay based on the book. And a lot of the show is comprised of scenes from his screenplay starring him and a cast of real actors, good actors. And... Uh, we tried to shoot it with good production value. It's basically a uh, an interesting man walking through his uh, memories of his interesting life, including things that may or may not have happened and things that he might wish would happen one day. <laughs> Again, there's no... <laughs> what's How would you guys describe it? I'm the worst. I'm probably the worst at describing it. It's probably why I, it took me a decade to get it finished is because it's so hard to pitch and talk about. And if you watch it, it's, it, it makes sense. Describing it, I was just hoping people would see it and just tell their friends, just watch it. But just for listeners at home, there's kind of like there's three layers, right? It's like there's the movie that this guy wrote, 
right? That yes. just looks and feels like a movie. And then there's the behind the scenes of making that movie. Yes. That you are in. And then there's kind of the documentary talking head archival footage. Yes. Almost true crime sort of feeling to it. For sure. Yeah. It's basically it's a bunch of different conceits and techniques woven together to try to tell this real story uh, of this real man that happened. But yeah, that, everything you, you, you've described is is accurate. Well, you know what I've told people is like that you've also directed episodes of Nathan for you. And then it, it does have kind of echoes of the rehearsal also. Yeah, no, Nathan, I've worked with him and he's a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people working in the genre of kind of comedic, but also sometimes dramatic uh, series that kind of use the real world as a, a canvas and use real people in interesting ways and allow reality to kind of uh, dictate what happens. So, yeah, that, I think that's that's something that a lot of people have, been, have compared it to just because I think there's not a lot of other shows doing anything similar. And so so in the behind the scenes parts, you, Jason, are literally on screen interacting with him. He's pitching you ideas. You're shoot. You're directing him off screen. We hear your voice. Talk to us a little bit about that. When in the development did you realize that you were going to become a character in this person's story? Yeah, I, you know, so I've been working on it ten years on and off. I've been trying to get it made and finished. And I, for a large uh, number of those years, did not want to be in it really at all. Beyond like a voice off screen, maybe asking a question here and there. Mm -hmm. My model was kind of Errol Morris in, I saw Mr. Death that he did at a, a very impressionable age and became obsessed with it in his work. And there's other ones, tabloid. And I mean, he's made so much great stuff. And most of the time he's like, you know, just kind of a presence. And then you'll hear, hear him ask a question. I don't mm -hmm. hate documentaries where you see the, the filmmaker, but it just didn't feel right for me or for this one. Yeah, you were, you thought you were a voice off mic. Yes. Like, yes. Why, why did you feel that way? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What happened was at a certain point, Paul started, you know, he was just, he wrote this whole screenplay based on what he said happened in his life. He started, this is a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen it, but he started writing sequels and spinoffs and then he just kept writing things that were happening in real life. And at a certain point, he, he emailed me, he's like, hey, I have new scenes I want to shoot. And they had he had a monologue for me talking about how I met him and how incredible I thought his story was. I was like, Paul, I'm not going to be in this. So it was a little bit of a a push and pull. Um, but in terms of, you know, I, you see me, as you were saying, in these behind the scenes parts. And that was all unintentional. But we shot a pilot for this, which became the first episode in 2017. And basically, I, I had these two cameras that were, you know, shooting on primes and kind of our, you know, cinema lenses, we called them. And those were kind of, you know, it was a very fast shoot. A lot of times we were just getting coverage at the same time, just cross covering. And then I would put a, a third camera was this friend of mine who's a brilliant photographer and documentarian named Jason Tippett. And I loved his his eye and sense of composition. And, and uh, I had him on set just rolling. You know, he would get a, a wide and just kind of roll the behind the scenes and let it happen. And then. And it started picking up, you know, little bits of me interacting with Paul. And at the end of the first episode, there's a, a thing where I come over and I, I kind of direct him to suggest that he maybe smile a little bit less in the scene that he's learning uh, that his wife had a secret double life. And he's like, oh, OK, good. And it wasn't this is the restaurant scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't for camera. It wasn't like, OK, let me go get a little bit out of this. I, at that point, I really didn't want to be in the show at all. And then in the edit, our editor of the pilot, uh, Mike Giambra, uh, who's gone on to be a very big, successful editor uh, of comedy stuff. Um, he put that scene in. He had me come over and talk to Paul, and I was really resistant. And 
ultimately convinced me. He was like, you know, this is an interesting scene because a lot of the question when you're watching the first episode is who who made this and why? <laughs> and like, what the, what is this? And, you know, we realized that people could start watching it and, you know, because of the, the Paul's acting is not professional and his writing is, you know, not very Hollywood, not very polished. And, and if you're watching it wondering, oh, did this person, whoever made this, just make it to, to kind of ridicule this guy or make fun of this guy, then to see the director come in at the end and try to direct a better performance out of Paul, we, we thought it added an, in- an interesting wrinkle. If you're thinking mm-hmm. watching whoever made this just made it to laugh at his kind of unskilled acting chops, and then you see the director actually try to get him to be better on camera, I thought that was interesting. And, and I did realize that people, I mean, the whole time people were, wanting more and more of me and I was just wanting less and less. There were every network this has been with, it's been with three networks and they've all wanted me to narrate it or, you know, mm-hmm. sit in a director's chair and interview myself on camera. And I just fought and fought for, you know, I always refused. I wouldn't do it. Um, it would probably have more appeal if I did. It would probably be easier to watch if someone, you know, on the, the kind of stuff like this that is narrated that holds your hand a little bit more that, you know, I just couldn't, I, I could never be like, you know, Hey guys, so I found this guy. weird guy. What do you what do you mm-hmm, think of this mm-hmm. guy, guys? I don't know. What do you think? Is he lying? What to me? am I doing? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to to pull on this a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Because there are moments very clearly where like you're like sighing or like rolling your eyes, and I wondered at what point do you learn that you're a character, and is there ever an impulse to uh, indicate a little bit more emote a little bit more just to kind of let the audience in on what where you are emotionally you know what i mean i was never behaving on set in a way that i really thought like oh this will be a good reaction shot but there are moments where i knew that you know when i was asking him a question or like when i when i go there's a scene where he was told by this uh pet psychic that he was consulting that his wife had done adult films and so he wrote a scene he says it was real that he goes to an adult video store and shows a picture of his wife at the time to the clerk. And she recognizes her and knows this like porn name. And I was like, none of this makes sense. Cause we couldn't find any evidence of that name being used on anything. So I went in and started asking him questions um, on set while we were rolling. And I knew we were rolling and I was like, well, this could be an interesting thing if we, you know, by that point I had kind of surrendered to the fact that I would be in it sometimes. And so like, that's an example of, I, you know, I, I assumed if that, got us something interesting that that i could be that, in was, that, that, that could I be usable be in yeah in yeah, terms yeah. of like there's a whole montage at the end of the fifth episode of me just looking very stressed out on set <laughs> and oh, like none of that i was thinking of the camera being on me you know i just knew Tippett was this guy was kind of roaming the set and would film things and sometimes he'd be you know on me but it'd be a very long lens and you know we but you were mic'd, obviously, the whole time. I was never mic'd on set. Oh, you were just I wouldn't speaking wear a mic. next to Paul T. Gold. You're yeah. next to Paul, so oh. his mic is speaking up. Yes, I, w- I, never, I never wore a mic. <laughs> Wait, a so tiny you, little side note. I feel like we're finding out that yeah, Jason yeah. was going to make this movie. <laughs> and his <laughs> editors just started sticking in the behind-the-scenes yeah. footage. Yeah. No, yeah. I, it I mean, show. it's almost like a psychological thing, though. I didn't want to wear a mic because it felt like artifice to me. And mm-hmm. I knew that... I'd be talking to Paul. There's booms around, you know, I knew I'd be picked up. I like being off mic on this. I just think there's a psychological thing where if I was so clean and on mic, um, like sometimes I did sound too good and I brought my level down because it just, it, it starts to feel fake and it wasn't fake. A lot of the battle of these kinds of shows and it extended to when I worked on the episodes of Nathan for you, I did 
or on the Borat movie that I directed is sometimes things in real life are so funny and so perfect. People just assume that they're staged or pre-written and nothing in this show that is presented as just having happened was written. Um, and so there are some people on like Reddit that I've seen amazingly who think the whole show is written because we're just not used to things being really funny and real. Like, or also we're so kind of mockumentaried out that we just assume when something has the rhythm of a joke in this format that it is just like an uh, office or parks and rec or one of those things. There is something to the editing though, that like makes it so like that scene we talked about. So the, the scene, yeah, where Paul T. Goldman is meeting his uh, wife's pimp, right? Or uh, whoever he's meeting at the restaurant. Yes. He was meeting one, uh, an ex-husband, uh, her, her oh, an ex husband, her yes, second ex-husband. Uh, the, the ex-husband of his wife. And, uh, and he's smiling the whole time and you come up to him and you're like, Paul, you know, this is, you probably are not excited to meet this guy. Maybe you should smile less. Like as soon as you walk away, like we cut to him and he just like gives such a huge smile, you know? That and was it's 100% like this, real. Yeah. But that, that cut, I feel like is what makes that whole thing like hilarious. Funny. Like there's yeah, so yeah. many things about you pushing him in one direction, cut to him going the opposite direction. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, that really was that moment you're talking about is fully representative of how it happened in real life that I walked away. And that is the next take that we show. And you just see a smile creep back onto his face. And it was because that was the pilot shoot. That was like the, you know, among the first times he'd ever been on camera, the excitement of being the center sure. of attention, I think was more powerful than he's having the time of his life. Yes. Yeah. 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 He's yeah. like, I'm being directed by a director. <laughs> that was what he was thinking <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah. I think yeah. there's also something to it that I'm getting to relive the these events from a very difficult part of my life but now he's kind of the one in control he's shaping the story mm -hmm. people are looking mm -hmm. i'm looking to him people are looking to him to how did this happen how do you want to present this um yeah from weakling someone, to warrior yeah it's, it's wimp to warrior it's for someone oh. like that it is like yeah so much of your life you feel like you have no control no one cares what you think and yeah i mean he was you know the focus i was saying how did this go how do you want this to feel You've worked with a lot of, obviously, actors, like very talented actors, new actors, and also real people. And I remember when I saw you walk up to Paul T. Goldman and, and you said, like, I think you would be angrier, like maybe just smile less or whatever you said. It, you, you know, I think as directors, we're like trained to do action oriented directing and like not result oriented. Yeah, yeah. Smile and less is, is like results oriented, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. But, but sometimes when you're untrained... What what else can you do? Right? Well, well, I you guess that direct, that's my right? question is like, yeah. do you direct real people like a Paul T. Goldman different than like in, you know, a yeah. Seth Rogen or a no, I, uh, Forte? I don't think so. I think Paul was a very specific um, case of of because uh, he's not an actor with a process. He's he's a person and he was, I think, looking for those kind of very specific things that would help him out. No, I think by usual style is is more typical of what you guys are talking about where you're you're you know it's the language of permission and it's like you're yeah like the, those action-oriented stuff and you know convince her of this or do you know <laughs> that kind of sure. stuff yeah, and yeah. yeah the real person who had no acting experience and i was trying to find ways to bring him back emotionally to these real moments and try to get him in the headspace of both how it was for him to live them and also what he was trying to convey in the writing. Cause he, he is, you know, he's the writer as well on this kind of thing. So it's really me interpreting 
what he was going after. Mm-hmm. Which a lot mm-hmm. of times I think was kind of subconscious or he wouldn't have described it the same way. That's why I loved these scenes, really. I mean, they were to me, all these scenes were very fascinating because of the subtext, because you're watching kind of an outsider artist, someone with no professional writing background, expressing himself to, you know, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I just I was endlessly fascinated with choices he made in these scenes. Yeah, I love that. And then also, of course, we're informed by the subtext through all of the other pieces, right? Like we, we learn to understand why he's decided to make these sort of outlandish decisions because he's trying to rewrite history or, you know, project in some way or, or yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Watching the show, you become more and more of a character. And also I think the audience learns more about Paul as a person and his attitudes and opinions, depending on your personal perspective like maybe you you don't agree with him quite so much right like you realize oh some of these things maybe are embellished or not true at all so in a sense your hero quote unquote becomes you know unreliable or maybe even unlikable in a certain sense right Mm -hmm. there's a moment where i thought oh maybe is jason deciding to be in showing your frustration with him maybe you sort of become like the villain of the show in a sense. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. As a way of maybe bringing the audience back to Paul a little bit more. Do you know what I mean? If if you're the guy who is making fun of Paul or like, do you know what I mean? Like, Because the, the, it's a, it's a tightrope that you're walking and, and I'm not accusing you of anything, obviously. Oh, no, but like, it's but, fair. But, you know, there, there is this, this, this thing of like, if we realize that Paul isn't being totally truthful... And you're still making a show about it. How do we feel about that? How do we feel about Paul? And how do we feel about you all become big questions that you're trying to figure out, right? So there's a there's a world where it's like, okay, well, if you're Hollywood, if you're the system, if you're the elites, right? Uh-huh. And Paul's the everyman, then maybe we're a little bit more on his side, even though he's made some decisions that we don't agree with. Did that ever cross your mind? Or is that just me kind of pulling things out of thin air? I love all this stuff. I mean, no, all these things were things I would hope I, I was hoping people would be asking along the way. I don't, I don't have, you know, definite answers. I think there's. You weren't like, this is my heel turn. <laughs> I May, never, roll my know, eyes there, you know. Well, there's something. No. I mean, there's a few scenes. There's a scene with me that I put in at the very beginning where, you know, because he's set up as someone who's kind of always getting scammed. He was, you know, scammed not only in this mm-hmm. marriage, but he was scammed in a business relationship. Mm-hmm. And. You know, later on, this relationship with the psychic I, you know, present as may have been somewhat manipulative. And I had spoken to his dad and his stepmother about eight years ago. We have a, 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 an interview that's um, scattered throughout the series. And in the second episode, they talk about how he's always getting taken advantage of and he's too trusting. And the day before the episode locked, I edited that with the story of his former business partner. And, and they're talking about, will Paul get, you know, fooled again will he get taken advantage of due to his trusting nature and his stepmom goes i don't think he'll get fooled again Mm -hmm. and then i just cut to myself kind of yourself yeah caught on set and i kind of wave away the camera it was kind of me acknowledging yes i know what's going on here i think there's a very valid way to look at this where any of these documentary projects that are about a unique person or a kind of eccentric or offbeat person or really any documentary about a person or group of people, I would say there's a way to look at it that's valid that the filmmaker is the villain of this because they kind of descend upon the lives of real people with this huge imbalance of power. You know, as much as the show is a struggle between 
Paul telling his story and me telling my story, uh, you know, telling the story that I want to tell about, about Paul telling his story, the balance of power is always on me. I'm the one editing it. I have the last word. I have all the control mm-hmm. of this situation, even down to like the, this final interview in the final episode is in Paul's kitchen. It was four hours and I framed the behind the scenes shot where I'm fully, I don't want to be on camera, but also there's something to, I'm still hiding behind the camera and kind of using the camera to mm-hmm. exert, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a show of power and I have all the power in that situation. And I'm, and me, I'm completely untrained in terms of, uh, being a therapist or interrogator and I'm grilling this guy, this real person mm-hmm. about his life. And I'm like, answer this question for me. And he's agreed to it and he's an adult, mm-hmm. but it's still a pretty, um, skewed situation. It's a very weird mm-hmm. situation. And so these are all things I was grappling with and, Absolutely. In terms of Paul is someone, you know, I, I like very much. I've known him a long time. Uh, you know, I always thought there were, uh, you, the reason I kind of became obsessed with it is because I found his, him very fascinating. His choices, fascinating, his worldview. I found his story, parts of it very heartbreaking and parts of it, you know, very shocking and um, parts of it very, you know, moving and inspiring. Um but also very funny. I found a lot of his story very funny. And he's aware of like certain things about it that are funny, but not in the same way that I'm uh, believing them to be funny. And so, yeah, there was an element of, I never wanted this to be a prank or to feel mean-spirited or just to feel like um, like a Windy City Heat kind of thing, which is very funny, but it's not what I wanted to do with this. Um, I really wanted it to be an examination of, of this person, a profile of this person I found very interesting. And some of it I would hope would be very funny. And then some of the, all those other things. But yeah, a lot of the stuff about me in there wound up being me expressing feelings of conflict about that. And yeah, mm-hmm. what was I, was I um, <laughs> a villain, as you say? Yeah, that's completely valid. It's so a lot of the show that people watch it and are like, what the hell am I watching? Why is this made? A good amount of the show was me trying to figure out why I was making it. <laughs> and, and so I guess, you know, a lot of people figure out why they want to do something before they do it. This, I just was kind of just pulled along by instinct. And I feel like there's something here. And I just knew I wanted to see these scenes and see this through. And I was like, I feel like this will be something very unique and interesting and will make sense and not just be a profile of a person I found very interesting, but be able to contain um, elements that, that I feel like are universal about the, you know, desire to feel loved and the, the desire to have a purpose and to have, you know, a, what you would think is a normal life and, and fit in. And, uh, and I think I just found, you know, I was hoping I, through Paul, it was just kind of an, ex- an extreme person, but someone that could allow me to explore all, all those things. But yeah, no, it is, I think to do any documentary about a real person is, is somewhat villainous. <laughs> and what year did you decide to make the show? 2012. It was a movie back then. It was a movie for the first few year, years of it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because I was going to ask you, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about mm-hmm. how to manage our time. The process. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, obviously, I know I, I know you have two kids that are were born after 2012. Yes. So maybe you weren't, you know, have a family and have all these things going on at the time. But it's still, you know, in 2012, you had already done an episode of the new girl you you know you you, you did human giant you had um you were and worked on snl you did all these things um and like how do you decide that this random guy that like uh, according mm-hmm. to your show has tweeted it like hundreds of directors mm-hmm. um trying and to get- emailing you for a decade right <laughs> you know like yeah. 
Like, how do you decide, yeah. you know, no, a docu-series, or I mean, I, I don't know if it was a docu-series back then, but like, how do you decide that your time is worth getting into bed with this guy with no, there's no money there. There's no anything. It's just this idea. Like, didn't you have like, you know, 20 screenplays on your desk that you're like, which one of these am I making next? Yeah, no, I just, I mean, I just follow my obsessions to a fault. I don't know. I've always, I've been very bad at career management. I have big gaps between big projects. I spend like years on I end. was going to say, Jason, you really, <laughs> boy, your IMDb <laughs> is a disappointment. <laughs> I know, I know. No, I just, I was like, well, this is, I, I this feels right. I want to do this. I think there's something here. I did a lot of other stuff in the meantime because, yeah, this would be, you know, yeah, show it to someone, wait a month, see what they say, spend a few years trying to raise money to do it as a, documentary feature decided we'd have a better shot doing it as a series you know convinced a, a company to get on board convinced hulu to get on board they passed on the pilot got seth rogan and evan goldberg involved to try to add some you know juice to the to the mix how, how did you did you know them i mean i know on jimmy kimmel seth rogan said that you're a good friend of his um, <laughs> um yeah we've been friendly for a long long time i came out to la Around 2009, I think I did. Around the time we moved out, I was doing a lot of work with Aziz Ansari. And um, and then he had a part in that Apatow movie, Funny People, where he played this mm -hmm. uh, very lively comedian named Randy. And we convinced Judd's company to pay for like a what at the time I think was like a DVD special feature, like a 20 minute fake documentary about Randy. And so I... I was hanging out there a lot. And at the time, yeah, we got, I, you know, got to know those guys and we had a movie. We were trying to figure out with them as and I, when we were writing movies together. And so, yeah, no, we've just been friendly and kind of in each other's, you know, in similar circles and uh, known each other for a while. And um, was it hard at that time? I mean, you had done human giant, which was on MTV, right? Yes. Um, it was a sketch show, sketch, sketch comedy show on MTV. Like, was it hard to convince like Judd Apatow that you were like, a director like ready to work with him i was working with aziz got cast on parks and recreation based on a couple of sketches that i think greg daniels and mike sure had seen you know at the time there weren't a lot of like comedy focused directors and i i just felt like if i kept going and you know i wasn't a jerk things would keep happening and yeah everything just kind of happened organically i think when you I mean, it's the same thing. You know, I was doing videos with with those guys. Uh, we, we call ourselves Human Giant. We were doing some videos in New York. We were very lucky with the timing. What happened was YouTube came out. And then right around that time, The Lonely Island uh, had a big, had like the first viral video uh, with uh, Lazy Sunday, that song they did. And then suddenly everyone was like, we want, we want short form comedy. And that's how we got a, a pilot at MTV. And that wound up becoming a show that ran for a few seasons. And then I moved out here out to L.A. And uh, and if you do one thing, you know, then people want to meet with you and see, oh, you want to you have any movies in you? You want, you know, at the time, I mean, I don't know what comedy movies are now. I've never been a huge fan of straight up comedy movies. So nothing ever really clicked. We, we sold movies, we wrote movies, we developed for a long time. You know, studio comedies uh, have kind of fallen off, but that was never really what I wanted to do. I was more interested in this kind of stuff or or, or things that were funny, hopefully, but, you know, felt like some mm -hmm. a, a new a new angle at something or felt or had some some kind of depth or, or some something different to it. When you're like trying to put some more 
fuel in the gas tank on this project. You knew Seth from from LA from working on various things and you just email him and you're like, hey man, I shot some stuff. Check this out. Do you think you can? It was basically, yeah, it was this guy, um, Michael Sagal, uh, an old friend of mine who runs Caviar, the commercial production company. And they mm. were the first ones to put any money into this project. They were starting a film division and it was just a video I shot myself and my uh, a DP friend of mine, Christian Springer. We went to Paul's house in Newport Beach at the time. And we interviewed him for a couple hours and I edited it myself and I brought it to Caviar. I said, hey, I think, you know, I want to do something about this guy. They came on. And so they've been on the entire time. And uh, and the way I got that pilot at Hulu is I, I had a friend named Johnny Dunn, still a friend who works at Annapurna. And I was like, hey, I'm, I've been trying to do this thing for about five years. You guys are getting into TV. Can I send it to you? And then he and then we took it to Hulu and, and got it going there. Then it, it you know, it didn't go at mm-hmm. Hulu. And then Michael Sagel from Caviar, uh, who also represents Seth and Evan as commercial directors, was like, hey, what, what if we showed it to those guys? And knowing that we were friendly um, and uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, if they can help get it made, let's show them. And they loved it. And at the time, yeah, that's when we went to Quibi. So they have a deal with this company, Lionsgate, the studio. And we all went to the Quibi office and we pitched it directly to Jeffrey Katzenberg and Seth, who um, I had. I don't even think I'd spoken to him about it in person. This is, you know, way, way before Zoom or whatever. But he had seen the pilot and you just you just learn why certain people are are mm-hmm. who they are because we just sat there and he, without any without us even having a conversation about it, just pitched his heart out and spoke with such eloquence and passion about this thing. And I I was blown away. And Jeffrey Katzenberg was like, Yeah, we're we're in. Yeah, great. <laughs> and so um <laughs> It really pays you you to to work with people if you if you get the chance to kind of you mm-hmm. know work with people who are at that level um who are into what you're doing it really it yeah that made all the difference like he has you feel like he has an, an innate ability to distill a concept into something that people are excited about yeah no he's he's brilliant i i've I've gotten to see it a few times and it's really uh no I really admire him and also there's been you know certain you know things to navigate with peacock and and whatever and and you know that's those are the times that those guys that's when you bring on you know your mm-hmm. your kind of more uh big big shot producers and just watching him navigate this stuff is i, I always marvel at it yeah have you ever had the flip side where you were like pitching with less you know star power so to speak I've only had the flip side yeah <laughs> <laughs> no pitching has for most of my career has just been a miserable slog. It only got easier after I did the Borat movie. If you can point to a, a big successful thing that everyone, that's the only reason I got this show made. It's such a weird show that this was one of the first things I went Mm -hmm. out with after that movie did well. And, um, you know, it puts people in a position to take a chance on you, but otherwise. It's a different deal entirely. Like they're like, Oh, okay. Well, well, Borat. Okay. We love that. Yeah. Wasn't Nathan for you like a, just such a perfect, in between step Nathan and I have been friends since he came out here and he would bring me on on that show to just do kind of they had a few more bigger more ambitious ideas in the first few seasons one was called the claw of shame it was like this Mm -hmm. kind of live event style thing one was called the hero where he went in prosthetics as another guy and kind of improved his life and then the other one I did was called the hunk that was like the bachelor um but these were all just like you know Nathan was the the vision behind that show and so i i would just come in from time to time and 
help execute when things were a little bit um, bigger in terms of production. Um, it's kind of a lo- logistical thing, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think like, on something yeah, like not, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's I mean, like he, yeah. he can't run back and forth between watching the crane shot of him on the hunk. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's yeah, just yeah. More, to, yeah. more to manage. And also, that show was a very cult hit i mean he only kind of blew up i think with the rehearsal or that show had a very slow burn even in the years mm-hmm. since it was on the air that it just kind of got bigger and bigger and, and then the rehearsal did did so well but it's not like having directed a few episodes of that i can walk into a room and and, and sell this this crazy show <laughs> if only if only <laughs> <laughs> i mean i guess like it's a combination of you've done that you've done you know a bunch of episodes of last man on earth what we do in the shadows it's like seems like those all add up to a guy that clearly knows comedy clearly like can work on a successful show and also has worked in this genre kind of docu style comedy genre. But I guess that gets you Borat, right? Yeah. Borat, I think I got offered because of my reputation um, was good. And Sasha's friends with Nathan. And also um, I think he had asked uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller because they produced last man on earth and, I love those guys and they've always been wonderful to me. And so I think he made a few calls to like feel out, you know, what people thought of me and, and, and everyone said very nice things. And, uh, and also I had turned down uh, who is America, his Showtime show actually, because I was uh, trying to get Paul T Goldman made and I thought it could happen in that space. And I was just trying to really focus on it. Um, But because I had, you know, a combination of having turned him down for something. So he wanted me for this and, and then hearing good things about me, uh, wanted me for that but you know otherwise this this show is so odd (laughs) in terms of there's no you know it's not a big comedy star at the you know on the poster and it's I mean I I was going I was saying look I want to shoot like a hundred something pages of stuff that he wrote and I think it'll be interesting did you guys really shoot a hundred pages of his screenplays oh well over a hundred it was probably closer to 150 there's so it was 15 days was the principal shoot and there's so many scenes that we cut out. Um, we just shot it in such an insane speed. Um, and it was, and that was it. And there, I wrote not a word of this show um, besides, you know, what you kind of de facto write mm-hmm. through editing um, and just, you know, putting things together and trimming things or whatever. But um, no, it was a hard, it was a hard show to pitch. You needed people <laughs> to really take a chance on it because you couldn't really point to anything that was quite like it. Do you, when you're doing stuff like this or Borat or Nathan for you, like, are you ever scared that you're not going to get anything good on a shoot day? Oh yeah. Always Borat. I mean, Borat, we shot for most of a year and it was all, I thought it was all terrible. (laughs) Um, You know, did you, were you involved in casting Maria Bakalova? Yeah. I'll take credit for discovering her. She, I I watched 600 self tape auditions and, and and found hers towards the end and i was just like there's some, something very special here because sasha is a very busy guy he's not watching hundreds and hundreds of auditions wow. so, so you watch 600 Did- yeah i watched everyone because i didn't you don't want to miss you know who the great one but she was just one of hundreds and she, i thought she was so funny and and then you she was up against a few very funny actresses who were kind of more seasoned improvisers or more, mm-hmm. you know, more from comedy, more known, some you'd recognize. And I, I felt so strongly that we, you know, we, we wanted someone authentic, someone real. We would go out in the real world and test these actresses with real people, you know, under different guises, different fake projects. And besides Maria, every other one would just get busted right away. And they, people would say, mm-hmm. what is this, is this like a Borat kind of thing? What are you doing? And, and because it's so hard to, 
perform in that style where one one line that just sounds too much like a written joke and you know people are mm-hmm. smart we're not shooting with idiots and people's radar for pranks is is pretty attuned <laughs> especially when situations get weird maria was unbustable she was so authentic that i think that was an important part of of why it worked that's incredible wow i've never even thought of that as like a trait <laughs> Of an actor, like, or even as part of the the audition process, going and shooting a prank, or like just like battle testing them, yeah, field testing them. So many people were just involved with weird shoots that will never see the light of day. That they just think was a strange, strange amateurish film crew. Do you pay the actors for that? The like the actors who are auditioning. Yeah. No, because it was it was really just an audition. It was just it was, it'll never be released in any form, and it was just like a, a test test shoot. I don't I don't. Uh, geez, I don't know unionize what the rule was, but <laughs> um, but it was just part of the audition process. So we only did it with I think three actresses. I remember reading and correct me if I am misremembering, but like that, uh, I think it, Larry Charles was saying that like the thing that makes Sasha Baron Cohen incredible is not just that he's a great improviser, but that they had just pre-written every scenario that Borat could ever come in contact with mm-hmm. and write a great joke for it. And that his, his superpower was in being able to recall the joke they wrote for the scenario six years ago, pull it out of the, you know, the filing cabinet and say it immediately in character yeah. and land the joke. Did, was that something that you were doing in Borat too? Like what, what's the yeah. preparation like for no, something that's like it. that? It's exactly that. Um, you know, yeah, Larry's an uh, incredible director and did the first Borat. And uh, it's that Sasha's process. You know, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of writing and thinking, well, if this happens, you could say this, if this happens, he's got, you know, this team of writers has been working with him for 20 years. This guy, Ant Hines, Dan Mazur, Peter Bainham. And then also uh, Jenna Friedman wrote a lot on the new one and, and some other writers would, would come in. And, but it's really that it's preparing every possible permutation of what could happen and making sure they have, you know, an idea or jokes. And then, and then he just practices and studies and gets, gets his head around it. And, but it is a high wire act. It's something of a magic trick. I was there for everything. I was there. I was in the writer's room for months. Um, I didn't get a writer credit because there were nine writers, I think on the movie or 11 <laughs> writers or something. Um, but I did a lot of writing and, uh, and then, um, and yeah, I, I have to go, you know, part of it is he and I secretly communicating, you know, he'll mm-hmm. go, go to the bathroom or go to a corner or we'll distract a person and, go over okay let's get this like to that mm-hmm. or you know he's not wearing an earpiece though you have to talk to Never. him in person yeah, yeah no yeah. he doesn't wear one yeah yeah like when he goes moves in with those guys in the cabin and stuff yes you guys i was living there and yeah there. i was living there with them for <laughs> days on end i thought you were just like in a van or something like no you, you were i don't there know too? i don't know how how that style compared to how larry charles did it um i was because I think on on that movie, um, this guy Todd Shulman, very brilliant producer, who was Sasha's kind of right hand for about sixteen years, he was kind of in the scene, navigating with the real people, managing things, all that stuff. Um, that's kind of what I was doing. There was a, there was this amazing field team of a few people who were also doing that. But I was there. I bleached my hair blonde because he, you know, thought I would look less Jewish <laughs> and people would trust me more. And I was just in the middle of things. And when things would get a little hairy and you know, people would start to get weird. I would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, he just got here yesterday. He hasn't been to this country. It was a misunderstanding. He didn't really say that. People were like, is he trying to get me to 
say something racist? What's going on here? I was like, oh no, it's just where he comes. You know, yeah, I was in the middle of everything. They try, you know, at the there was a debutante ball. They did this dance mm-hmm. where uh, she was showing yeah. her menstrual blood, and I mean, they we we got Sasha and Maria out, but those guys came to try to beat me up, like while we, while I was getting the crew out, and I could hear guys coming for me and screaming my name. My name was Chris, but all the while, you know, there's a lot of running from people people would call the cops all the time because they thought they they never thought it would be it was like a comedy movie they thought they were being robbed or something when they're like Mm -hmm. what what is going on here um how many cameras did you have uh usually three sometimes more you know at cpac when he he kind of disrupted mike pence's speech that was we probably had eight or more cameras there Mm -hmm. we didn't get press Mm -hmm. passes so they were all iphones and little dslrs and stuff um i was always more nervous I mean, that that day I was a little bit nervous because the Secret Service was very much on us. Um, but usually I was much more nervous about, like you said before, to circle back, getting a funny scene than getting arrested, mm. you know, because we were never yeah, yeah. doing anything illegal. So right. you want to if people call the cops, you're allowed to legally you can leave before cops get there. It's not you know, it's not fleeing if uh if the cops aren't there <laughs> they're not there and uh, do you remember yeah. uh seeing a video like a behind the scenes video you're reminding me i think where you you must have been shooting at the concert where he comes out and sings the song yeah. about um i can't remember the refrain now but he gets people to sing something quite terrible back and forth to yes him. the wuhan flu uh, the wuhan flu so that's right that's right <laughs> um uh and there's a the a behind the scenes where i guess you guys maybe had like a ambulance staged as a getaway vehicle and Sasha Baron Cohen is like holding the door shut and like telling the driver to drive like genuinely terrified yeah I shot that I'm shooting that that was on my iPhone uh yeah I was uh waiting by the getaway car we hadn't even planned for me to get away with him but I just thought I should go over when they like stormed the (laughs) stage and there's a guy grabbed his gun and it was just chaos I was like I'm gonna go by the getaway vehicle and I was like I think this would be interesting so I was just filming um we got in, they surrounded the ambulance, banging at the door, screaming. They'd figure out who he was at the time. They're screaming his name or get out, get out. And they're like, get Borat, like that sort of stuff. They were like, screaming Sasha. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're like, get yeah. out. We know who you are. They surrounded the car. We couldn't leave. And um, and so I just started filming with my iPhone because I thought it would be interesting. <laughs> and, then and then Amazon they, is like, this is perfect marketing material. <laughs> yeah. He's dressed like he's in this fat suit. He looks like this hillbilly cartoon character, yeah. this big um, beard, I think. And, uh, and then but is there just, like a cavalry that's like going to come rescue you? Or are you, no. Because, but you're not worried about getting out alive. You're just worried about getting out. That day I was worried. Yeah, that day they wanted to kill us. Um, and but they ripped the door open. It. You're not like getting in the driver's seat and... No, it yeah. wasn't my ambulance. I couldn't hijack it. I knew that was, I mean, you can't, well, you can't gun it if there are people standing in front of the car. Right, right. Um, so we, we were just hoping that cops would uh, help us in that situation, help mm. us leave. We hadn't, again, we hadn't done anything illegal. Yeah. You're allowed to leave a concert um, yeah. and you're allowed to <laughs> sing a silly song on stage, you know, and we had basically hoodwinked that group. We had paid for that event without them being aware we, we'd, um Mm -hmm. we posed as like a right-wing group with a mysterious benefactor that wanted to help them build a bigger stage and pay for the pa and whatever and that was all our idea to kind of be able to control this thing so we had actually Mm -hmm. infiltrated this uh gun rally so that when they tried to pull the power when they realized it was him which was like i think over nine minutes into singing this ridiculous song they started to realize something was up they wanted to pull the power but we had our own security there and we wouldn't let them on stage. That's when they stormed the stage and mm-hmm. were pulling guns mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, no, I didn't. I was, that was scary. <laughs> I just had faith. I was like, I'm probably not going to die filming Borat too. I don't think that's how I'm going to go. How um, funny would it be if that's how you went? Down? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I feel like, I mean, we had good escape plans. We had good security. And we were as planned as as could be, and we were never doing yeah, anything yeah. illegal. Yeah, we were disrupting a gun rally, and there were uh, angry people there. We were at there's a whole scene we shot, I think, in January of that year. Yeah, uh, January of 2020, so pre COVID, but in Virginia, it's the big, I think, the biggest gun rally in American history. And I was just walking <laughs> around the cities with literally, I think, twenty thousand mostly men with these, you know, giant AR 15s or whatever rifles. they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and um. It was very surreal. I just felt like that was probably the least likely place to erupt into violence. But two days before, the FBI had arrested, like, I think six members of this, like, uh, terror cell who were planning to do some kind of shooting there to try to, you know, launch um, (laughs) the next civil war. That was scary. That was really, I mean, it was scary. I don't know. There were a lot of scary times filming that movie. At the end of the day, I was most afraid of having my name on a mediocre sequel to yeah. you know my favorite yeah, yeah. comedy of all time it would so, be rough to be like oh, i tanked borat that would yeah. be a bummer yeah, yeah i was more scared of that than dying to to be like oh this movie is lame uh or yeah. considered just like a failure or forgettable that was what was kind of keeping me that was keeping my stomach in knots for the year and a half i was working on it uh, more more than getting hurt or killed right the opening sequence of borat is right a scripted thing, right? Where he's in town, yes. in his oh. in Kazakhstan. Where he's in his town, yeah. That's that's all scripted. When he, when he gets to America, it becomes uh, all real. Besides the just the scenes with him and the daughter uh, that are kind of in between some stuff. Otherwise, everything is real people who aren't aware of what's okay. going on. So you have the scripted scenes in Borat. You have obviously in Paul T. Goldman his script that you're shooting. Like yeah. uh, as a director, just like from a you know pure craft mm-hmm. enjoyment, like. Is, do you, is there, like, I feel like I know your answer, right? but do you enjoy one more than the other? Like when you're, are you like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to do these scripted scenes. I'm going to work with like actors. I'm going to have these funny beats that are planned out in my a shot list. And like, I will aim the camera here when he gets hit in the nuts by this guy. <laughs> um, or do you enjoy more the like, I don't know what's going to happen, but let's set up the situation and. It's more thrilling to, when there's really an element of not knowing what's going to happen or just setting up a situation and seeing what happens when there's more room for failure and, hey, we might, get, we might not get anything out of this. But then if you capture uh, a moment that, that's real and is clearly real and, you know, when things are, are real and with real people there, sometimes they're funnier than anything you could write. Uh, and, and so that's probably a more exciting thing to direct um but i I, you know i love all this stuff i also love working with great great actors and funny performers and watching you know watching kind of magic happen on set is yeah that's great too but there is something when i was doing the borat movie people were you know it is like legally robbing a bank or something it's the closest thing like the rush you get when you're escaping somewhere and you know you got a really funny thing that millions of people are gonna see is pretty un unparalleled and are you like going into those situations, like making a, like, Hey, it would be awesome mm-hmm. if we got like a drone shot and like a beer, like a wide shot here. And then like, or even just oh, a yeah. plan Over. with your camera team, right? Like even like oh, what yeah. happens when this happens or, you know, everything. Yeah. You have to, you just plan it it's so much more meticulously than a normal shoot because there's very little, there's no pausing once you're into it. There's no stopping and readjusting. These are, it's more like 
shooting a kind of chaotic live event where you know you have only one shot at it and and everything has to be so well communicated planned before you know cpac we did that we did that thing we knew we wanted him to do something during pence's speech i had to get online at 4 a.m with the rest of the crew sit there for eight hours or whatever he was sneaking in under three layers of prosthetics or whatever it was and then i'm you know, looking at all the operators' frames on a WhatsApp thread and making adjustments and having, you know, certain operators trying to look around them being like, who's going to give a good reaction and making sure, okay, the angle on them is going to have both their eyes in the shot so we get the full face reacting, you know, based on where I think he's going to be sitting. But we had no tech scout or anything. I snuck in the ballroom uh, two nights before while they were setting it up to try to get a sense of how the um, chairs were going to be arranged. But we had no, there's no rehearsal. We rehearsed in a hotel ballroom where we kind of simulated how we thought it could go and you just rehearse and rehearse. And then you're in the real world, everything changes and you have to be able to kind of pivot on the fly. That's definitely the most exciting and and stressful form of, of directing. I mean, everything, you know, in terms of executing jokes on a set, it's fun, but it's also, it's so much easier than trying mm-hmm. to do this real mm-hmm. world stuff i, I want to b- back up just a little bit the so the whatsapp thread just mm. on a logistical level so some people are on their phones they're sending screenshots of their frames and then other people are shooting photos of the dslrs yeah like take a photo with gotcha. their phone of the viewfinder or whatever this is what i'm getting and be I like see. this Got is that. the person okay. i'm getting i'll be like okay no you know the other camera is getting them you go to go mm-hmm. to someone else and do, yeah because there was no monitors or nothing. Um, we just had to look like we were attendees and, you know, Secret Service is going up and down the aisles looking for, you know, they're looking for like an assassin or something. Right, but, um, right. Not right. a dude who's like really into his phone. <laughs> and you yeah. have like a sound person in there too that's just recording or a few sound people just recording audio? Yeah, we had sound. I mean, you know, Sasha's always wired and uh, and she would be wired. But again, it was like when you're out in the world, there's no booms or anything. So. I think sometimes he would wear two wires just as a backup, uh, just to make sure we got it. But yeah, yeah. And then you have you have the sound recorder somewhere, you know, in range. Again, kind of like talking about this balance between these comedy docuseries and a show like Last Man on Earth, which I feel like when I first mm-hmm. watched that show, I was like, this is like one of the best looking shows so, I've ever seen. And it's a comedy. Show. Yeah. 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 It was and great. Also, yeah. Christian Springer shot the pilot. Same same guy who shot the early Paul T. Goldman stuff. He shot that and he shot the mm-hmm. first, I think, first season. And then right. it was Carl Hersey, right? And Carl, I think, believe I, I believe Carl did the third season and then kept going for a while. Yeah, I love Carl. So you've done this stuff that's like incredibly that looks beautiful, you know, and composed and camera movie, you know. And then you've done stuff like CPAC where you literally don't even know where you're gonna point the camera and have no feeds until you're there. Something I noticed in Paul T. Goldman is the whole thing is like anamorphic. Yeah. Like, how do you make those decisions? Like, can you just tell us a little bit about the aesthetics that you go for on a show like that? Because we know, obviously, the movie scenes, you're probably going to try to make them look different than the docu scenes. Um, But but what's the thinking? Yes. And the the kind of movie scenes were shot on the Christian on the pilot picked these very specific primes that had this very vintage feel that were, I think, very hard actually to use for for the DP and the operators where they, they only focused like right in the middle of the screen. So if you look at the mm-hmm. shots, like his, the heads are always like out of focus towards stuff, but it gives you this nice kind of dreamy look and they would ever push everything and make everything grainy. And then kind of, as we go deeper in the show, it goes from kind of being like a divorce drama to an action movie. We switched to different lens. We kind of went to more modern lenses and 
started lighting it more a little differently, a little more kind of stylized, a little more action. And then it also in the, the color correct. We we you know it's really just for all this stuff you're saying. It's about choosing the look that's right to execute the idea that you're going for. So I knew, yeah, I wanted the filmic scenes in this to look a certain way, but I also wanted the behind the scenes to look, you know, beautiful as much as we could, you know, and for that, he was not really setting up lights. He would just light by choosing an angle and and kind of see where the light was coming from. And so sometimes people would be in silhouette, but it would look nice. It's all, yeah, 239 because we shot the original interview thinking it would be a, a feature um, and just stuck with that for the show. Except in the last episode, there's a couple of 16 by nine segments where it kind of pops out and you're in like a CW style teen, uh, teen show <laughs> or a cartoon dog show. Um, but really it's like case by case for the Borat movie. I was trying my best to ape the look of the first one because I thought the first one looked so great. It was like early, I think Panasonic It was like the first kind of prosumer HD camera that the, is it the HVX 100. Right, two hundred. Pardon me. Pardon me. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it was bigger than that. It wasn't the HVX. It's like the Vericam. Yes, I. Some we shot. We did tests. We got the real camera and tried to see if I could shoot this movie with the same cameras. And there was it was like that era where there was that like two three pull down awful like Mm -hmm. where they were still Mm -hmm. recording uh, like to an interlaced format. So you had to do this all this shit to make it like actually look like twenty four p. Um. So and. And the actual, we, we we did one of those test shoots with those old cameras and the rubber was like coming off on the operator's sure. hands. Like the cameras are just fully deteriorating. You're just like, can we just get something with regular batteries? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what we wound up doing is we used, I really, I, I didn't, I don't really love like the general 4K look for this kind of comedy stuff that's supposed to, you know, the the, the conceit of that is that it's a, a one camera operator from mm-hmm. you know you know it also doesn't totally make sense there's obviously coverage in these scenes but you think it's like camera operators a, ca- a small camera crew from the fictional kazakhstan of the movies which is you know this very cartoony um na- european eastern european nation that has nothing to do with the real kazakhstan but the idea was that it would not look good it would never look lit it would just look like a camera was shoulder mounted and swinging around and i really didn't want it to look like you know 2020 4k netflix Mm -hmm. comedy um i think that stuff you know whether it's just too crisp or the depth of field just feels different it just kind of is a comedy killer i think for me um for that kind of a project and so Mm -hmm. well we when the old cameras were proving too faulty we wound up shooting on modern cameras aries i think that we would do some mode where you were only shooting the very center of the chip. They would zoom all the way in. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a much lower, I think it was like a 1080 image on a 4K chip, but it was giving us a feeling that was much closer to the original look. It's a, interesting that you mentioned like a format can be a comedy killer because like when you do do like a Last Man on Earth, you're probably going for like high fidelity, great right. shallow depth of field. Yeah, right. the look that Christian said on that show on that pilot was yeah very cinematic. It was very you know slow dolly moves and you know below eye line prime lenses and and that kind of stuff. A lot of darkness. Um, and that was the right look for that show. Uh, it was like a show about a lot of loneliness and sadness and whatever. Especially <laughs> the early seasons were were able to go to you know be very dark and and a lot of the a lot of the whole show. Yeah, it's really just kind of case by case. I do sometimes think like it's harder to make something funny when you're shooting it like that than when you're mm-hmm. shooting it, like what we do in the shadows, you know? 
where you have like zooms or you have like cuts mm-hmm. to you know uh confessionals and all those things it really is but you. it really like the format last man on earth you know is all sprung from will forte's brain and you know he has a, a little group of collaborators that share that sensibility but on that show it was very he's very precise and very conceptual and and very intentional about how something looks and the rhythm of it and i think that's why you know we got along because i mean he's he's brilliant he's one of the funniest comedy minds around and he would just see in his head exactly how a you know quote unquote gag mm-hmm. would go and i would you know we would see eye to eye and i would just you know try to figure out how to execute it but um but i think the look at that show was important because it is you know his sense of humor is so precise the precision i think is the a really helpful term because you know, looseness is what you associate with a Parks and Rec or a Borat or, or, you know, something more verite. Do you find yourself when you're locking a camera off or being precise? Are you ever like, dang, I wish we could just like give the actors permission to do whatever and like we can catch it? Or like, do you ever feel locked in or or reined in by that precision? You know, on that show, there was also a lot of improv because they did have really funny people in. And so it was really just about I, I think I was, you know, probably speaking more about like when he would have a specific gag in mind. Like I, mm-hmm. there's something I did one where he stuck up on a billboard. He's trying to make some shade with his pants. And as soon as he like gets it fixed, mm-hmm. it like cuts wide to a big static wide and the pants just fly away out of frame. And I and that was like <laughs> a gag in the script. And I saw it a certain way. And I think it, it really worked. Mm-hmm. Um that's the kind of stuff of just like right. making jokes land. And then, yeah, that show. Did. You have this, just a, do you have like a, the pants on a wire when you do that? How do you? Yeah, the pants it? were yanked on a wire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and with a big fan, like to get them to blow. Well, it or? might have been on a, it was definitely a big fan. Maybe it wasn't a wire. I think we just had a fan out of frame that just blew them away when we queued them. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the gags on that show are like so insane. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah there are always it? big visual ideas every episode. But then, yeah, there was also a lot of room to improvise and yeah show like parks and recreation or what we do in the shadows those shows are so performance based that it's such an ensemble that's you know each each actor is bringing something of their own to it and um it just kind of depends what it what it is you know on the stuff that's kind of like my own stuff i i i tend to often be executing an idea that i found funny at some point earlier and see it a certain way and are trying to mm-hmm. convey what made me laugh about the idea you know on on screen so there's there's some of that kind of intentionality involved. What's next? I uh, I just handed in a script today to a producer that I'm writing for a studio. I can't, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it yet, but I, that would be a kind of complete opposite in many ways project um, that I hope to, it would be great to do this year. Uh, and that you wrote for yourself to direct? Is that kind of... I would hopefully direct it. I co-wrote it with an amazing writer and got another feature I'm, I'm really trying to do. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm kind of take. you know, I, we just handed in the show a couple of weeks ago. So I'm, I'm still, you know, I just finished cleaning out my office and uh, I'm just trying to kind of reclaim ownership of my head that I'm not uh, thinking about Paul T. Goldman all the time for a few weeks and then figure <laughs> out, figure out what I want to do next. Do you actively try to get like TV directing gigs and commercials or do you kind of just i'm always commercials have really helped me like float you know in years uh while i'm for instance trying to get something like paul made uh so i'm always i'm definitely looking right now yeah i'm in a a window where i'm I'm hoping to do some commercial work and you do you write treatments you do the whole the the whole thing thing. the whole dance yeah just like everyone else (laughs) i gotta say jason hearing that you do commercials 
makes me personally feel better. Oh, Do you know what I mean? Why? <laughs> well, because, you know, it's like I love commercials and didn't think that I would, you know, like I didn't grow mm-hmm. up thinking like someday I'll do advertising. I'll sell hamburgers or whatever, <laughs> but it's really fun for a lot of different reasons, right? You get to work with different crews and all of this stuff, but it is, you know, it's a survival job in a certain sense, mm-hmm, right? Sure. Like, and so it's nice just to be reminded that like everyone needs to like stay sharp or stay busy or like you said, like float a little bit of cash in between the Paul T Goldman's or whatever. Like that's whether that's just for your mental health. There's all sorts of different reasons people like to work, right? Like, you know, um, uh, but yeah, it's interesting just to be reminded that like a person who's doing the best shows on television, you know, does commercials too, you know? Well, look, Todd Field, uh, that's how, that's what he did in the years between. He did, he's done three movies. He just did Tar and he's been yeah. doing commercials before that. Sure. That made me feel and, like, yeah, look. I mean, Errol Morris, he's not making money on those movies. There you go. Errol yeah. Morris. That's, I think it's guys like, it's, you know, people, directors I really admire do it. And uh, I don't, I mean, at a certain point, I, I'm sure there's a stigma, but I, it, it holds a role in my life that I, I, I there's a lot of value and um yeah there are certain years where i would be just i, I would have been completely screwed had i not had that <laughs> <laughs> and it really is i'm I'm very i'm proud of i've tried to keep my imdb as pure as i can there's a few blemishes but I, i've done my best to only work on the kind of stuff i'm excited about or i would be a fan of or i want to do mm-hmm. my friends are doing or to you know feels like only i can be doing it is you know exciting interesting work the, the way i've been able to do that is is by taking commercial jobs in between uh so yeah no i i appreciate it when we do our our intro we're gonna make them go watch paul t goldman Truly. thank you uh, if, if you watched it please tweet at jason moliner um tweet what, oh yeah that's uh you're, just you're all i jason. ask i'm at j j Walliner. it's, it's uh, the jason Walliner was like an old account yeah if you like it or if you hate it uh just tell you know tell people you can tell people there's a terrible disaster of a show on peacock but you got to check it out to believe it everyone who watches the show tweeted jason and paul if you're listening tweeted the show at just shoot a pod he probably will he seems to listen to everything uh i do i've never uh i've never been more hopeful that someone would listen to the show who's associated with the project if you tweeted him when you put it out he will he will listen hi paul but like in all seriousness you know obviously I know you from uh, our kids go to daycare together, That's right? But every single person I've seen online mention the show like loves it, yeah. and it's like, yeah. you oh, know, a lot thank of, you. A lot of great comedic minds, you know, think it's genius, and and really the best way to understand what the heck we're talking about is just to watch the show. So uh, people should do that. And is Peacock? Can you get like a free trial or something? How does that work? Ah, uh, geez, I don't know. I think uh, uh, I don't know if there's an offer code Goldman. I don't know if that still works. Um, I don't know if anyone just, uh, email me, I'll give you my login. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's pretty affordable, right? It's yeah, like I think it's like a month. Yeah, five or six bucks. I think it's yeah, it's like four ninety nine. Nope, you, you can watch tar, Bros, Tar, tar Bros, yeah. all the yeah. one word. I think we movies. watched Yellowstone on it. Poker Face is, is really good. There's a lot of good stuff. Um, Peacock's the place now. <laughs> yeah, and it's six. It's only six episodes, right? Paul T. Six Goldman. episodes. Like you can watch it. You can, you know, four ninety nine, six episodes. That's less than a dollar an episode. Get it for a month. Yeah. And if, you know, remember to cancel it at the end of the month. It's uh if you don't like the <laughs> if show, like if you don't like the show, tweet at Jason. He will give you 
<laughs> uh, the money back. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if we awesome. can get you to spend a million dollars. There we go. Yeah. Uh, Jason, do you have a few more minutes to hang out and endorse with us? Oh, sure. Sure, sure. Unpaid endorsements. Okay. So I'm going to endorse two things. One is the Hollywood Reporter does these videos every year where they invite actors and directors that I think they think will be, might be nominated for Oscars that are really much in the conversation. It's, it's kind of like a podcast. It's kind of like this, but uh, you have like some amazing minds just talking about this year. They had Austin Butler from Elvis, Colin Farrell from the Banshees of Insurance, Brendan Fraser from The Whale, Jeremy Pope from The Inspection, and Kehi Kwan from Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Adam Sandler from Hustle. And it's kind of like a real like assortment of actors, like all ages, all kind of experiences. And it was such a good conversation, especially the guy from Everything Everywhere All at Once talked about his career and how, you know, he was in the Goonies, he was in Indiana Jones, and then he had nothing for 25 years. Basically, he was about to turn 50. And he's like, my favorite, the favorite thing in my life was acting. And I just totally gave up on it because he was, you know, waiting for a call. And at that time, no one was casting Asian actors like him for anything. And so he went to film school, he did all these other things, but he decided, you know, as, as I'm turning 50, I'm going to call my friend who played Chunk on Goonies, who uh, was a lawyer, entertainment lawyer. And he's like, and, and say like, hey, I want to get back into acting. You know, if you hear anything, like help me out. And like two weeks later, he got the audition for Everything Everywhere All at Once. And he was so, he, well, he got the script. He thought it was amazing. And he had this audition and it was his first audition in 25 years. And he's like so insanely nervous. And he hired like an acting coach and like a movement coach, and like a dialect coach and all these, these people to help him. And it's crazy because, you know, he's from these like two giant films, but he's just like the most nervous green actor ever going to an audition. He went in and he auditioned for the Daniels. And at the end, they're like, cool, thanks for coming. And he, he left. Did, didn't hear for like a month, right? For two months. No, oh no wow. word. And so... um you know, just flash forward to now he's like nominated for an Oscar. It was just like him just talking about acting and about, you know, I think so many of us, not Jason Moliner, or you have, you put something out every single year since 2009. Now he's, he's nominated for an Oscar. It's a really good talk. The Hollywood Roundtable actors won. And since I spent so much time talking about that, I'm going to skip my other one. I'll save it for next time. <laughs> save it for next time. Uh, Jason, uh, what you got, buddy? I don't have anything nearly as um, touching or inspiring. I was just thinking about things I like lately. There's like a comedy performer, writer named Jack Benzinger, who uh, on Twitter and I guess other social media things just makes me laugh harder than anyone else right now. Check him out. He's good. He's good. Put him in stuff. Get on that train before it leaves the station. We'll check it out for sure. Um, I finally figured out what my endorsement is. And it's the film Missing. It's the sequel to Searching. It's a screen movie. It's a screen movie. It's a mystery. You kind of imagine maybe if you're a little apprehensive, like, ah, how how enthralled can I be? How, how captivating is this thing? It maybe feels a little contrived. I've seen, do I want to watch people text message and Google for two hours? The answer is yes. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. Cool. And I think it's because... They never do the same trick twice, with the exception of they'll, they, every once in a while they'll do that thing where they'll like write out a text but not send it and then delete it and write something else. And it's like a way of showing inner monologue. Yeah, um, that's I really, do that, that all the time. It's, by the way. it's, it's, it's really it's good. real. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's real. <laughs> and other, or like the, the disappointment of like seeing the three dots and then them not sending the message. Like there's a few tropes that they use, but it's very sparing. Most of it is 
really clever and, and really inventive, but the plotting is great. The mystery, the twists and turns of like thinking that, oh, this person is the kidnapper, that person, all of that stuff is really, really well executed. And so even if it was just a traditional, you know, like low budget caper, uh, it would still be really fun. So um, I saw it in the theaters, which was, I think, maybe especially helpful because you know it's one of the, it's hard to see them on phones yeah nice right. to yeah it'd be too much but you know like it is a thing where like if you if you were to check your phone for instance you would miss kind of what's charming and fun about it you know you have to you're being forced to stay engaged with Does it watching with a movie audience. that is all screens make you less wanting to look at a phone while you're watching it because you feel like <laughs> you're looking at your phone i you know if i was at home I think it would be a wash. I think that I would be equally likely to look at my phone one way or the other. So missing is uh, is my recommendation. Jason, this was great. Where can people follow you? Keep track of all of the great things that you've been up to. Just Google continue. Google my name, whatever comes up. I'm about to go dark again on Twitter. I hadn't posted in years. I don't generally post online, but I lurk. I read online. <laughs> so I see anything anyone says about me. So... If you want to get in touch with me, just say something about me online. I'll get it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, if you have any questions for us, you can tweet at us at Just Shoot It Pod. We're across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. You can email us at Just Shoot at gmail.com if you have a longer question. You can check out old episodes of the show at JustShootItPod.com. And you can tweet at me or Instagram me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm on Twitter at SmiteyPileg. I'm on Instagram at OKaplan. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Our producer is Tyler Small. And you're listening to music from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.